Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis, and this is On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week's doc tells the story of Japanese-Canadian architect Raymond Moriyama's magically imperfect buildings. My name is Raymond Moriyama. I'm an architect. This Lifetime Achievement Award goes to a man who has made an extraordinary contribution to the world of architecture. Raymond Moriyama. It's kind of strange to say this, but at four and a half, my future profession was settled. God, he or she, opened up my eyes towards architecture. The rest of my life was just details. But it wasn't easy. While you may not have heard of Raymond Moriyama, there's a good chance you've been in one of his buildings. The Ontario Science Centre, the Toronto Reference Library, and the Canadian War Museum are just a few buildings that Moriyama has left his mark on as both architect and visionary. But his journey to becoming an architect was painful, beginning with a childhood accident that left him bedridden. And during that time, his father felt he ought to at least have some uh, window onto the world. As he watched, uh, there was a house being built across the street, and he saw this man walk onto the site with... Uh, roll a paper under his arm and he'd unroll it and all the other men would come around and smile and nod and Ray thought, well, this guy, he, he wants to know who he is, what he does. And he asked his father to go across and find out. His father came back and said, well, he's called an architect. And Ray said that he knew at that moment he, that's what he wanted to be and he determined at that time he was going to be an architect at age four and a half. That's Scott Kalbeck, the director of Magical Imperfection, the life and architecture of Raymond Moriyama. Kalbeck started working on the documentary in 2005, right after Moriyama wrapped up construction on the Canadian War Museum. He knew there was a story behind the architect and created a doc that captures the events in Moriyama's past that defined the architect he would become and inspired what he'd create. So let's get into it. Here's our conversation with Scott Kalbeck. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Why a documentary on Raymond Moriyama? I came to this because my background is in history, and I uh, did a degree at the University of Western Ontario uh, called Public History, which is history for a non-academic audience. And one of the ways that that is presented is through museums and also through film. So when I heard about this new Canadian War Museum in 2005 and I read about the architect who I'd never heard of, I thought this man would be a great subject for a film, knowing what little I do. And so I made it my job to find out if he would participate. Um, and that was 2005. Uh, so this uh, films often take uh, a long time, as you probably know, to come together. And this was no exception. Uh, once I met Raymond and heard some more about his story, I was convinced that this man... Uh, uh, he ought to be more widely known. He, he, um, 
he brings such a humanistic approach to his work, and um, I decided that I would not stop until I made this film. Why did he want to be in, in a documentary? He had, having just finished the Canadian War Museum at, I guess, the age of 75, that was going to be his last major work. And uh, I guess he felt that made it possible for him to be a little more uh, reflective about his life and career. And uh, he had certainly maybe had the time now to, to uh, devote to it. Because he had, he told me he had been asked many times to participate in a film, and he had always declined. He he didn't think that it was something he wanted to do. But uh, my timing was good. He was ready to uh, entertain the idea. It's called Magical Imperfection. What does that title mean? Well, that goes to what Ray learned from his grandfather when he was only six years old. His, and it's uh, we uh, have a moment in the film where he relates this story. He then asked me a very important question. He said, which is more beautiful, this imperfect moon or the perfect moon you saw the other day? Before I could answer, he said, Junichi, don't you think this imperfection is more beautiful than perfection? A man is not perfect. There is magic to imperfection. And uh, that I remember forever. <laughs> and uh, imperfection can be magic, is what he said, and that, uh, that stuck with me. Well, you mentioned the Canadian War Museum, and he's got a, quite a few famous buildings that Canadian War Museum, which is in Ottawa, of course, the Batashu Museum and the Ontario Science Centre, which are both in Toronto. Is there anything magically imperfect about any of those buildings? Uh, the War Museum is a good example of imperfection. He actually told his contractors and the people on the job he wanted perfect imperfection because it was meant to give people a sense of unease and if it was perfect, it couldn't do that. Um, so the walls are tilted and the floor, the ceiling undulates and the floors uh, are uneven and there's rough concrete exposed. Um, these are all things to remind us, I, I believe, that uh, we're not perfect, but we can strive for it. The only part of the War Museum that is not uh, imperfect, you might say, is a one nine meter square room that is the it's called memorial hall and that's where on november 11 if the sun's out at 11 o'clock when remembrance day uh, services or ceremony begins light will shine through a window into that room that nine meter square room and illuminate the tomb of the unknown soldier the original one that was brought back from europe Let's go back in time a bit, because uh, he's, he's led a very interesting life. Uh, he had obviously a very painful event. A couple of painful events happened to him uh, when he was younger uh, that kind of inspired him to become an architect. And I'm thinking of uh, one incident uh, when he was very young uh, that led, have left him bedridden. Can you tell that story? Yes. Um, Ray tells how he was only four years old and he was already uh, precocious. Uh, he used to had a paper or a, a balsa wood airplane that he would fly from one room into another and make it land on the kitchen table. 
And this one time, the, the maybe a door or a window was open and the wind carried the plane up onto uh, the wood-burning stove. And he thought it was going to burn up and he didn't want to wait for his mother, he, he, who wasn't in the apartment. He ran up, got on a stool, and as he reached for the plane, he, the stool tipped and he knocked over a pot of boiling stew that went all the way down on his, the back of his head and his uh, back and his arm. After my accident, I was in bed uh, for eight months. My arms wouldn't move properly, and I was really stiff as a wooden puppet. It was a total disaster. And during that time, his father felt he ought to at least have some uh, window onto the world, and he put the bed up against the window so that Ray could look out into the street. Uh, this four-year-old boy who, whose arms aren't moving properly, who uh, can't leave the house, basically. But as he watched, uh, there was a house being built across the street. And uh, he likes to say as a four-year-old boy, he thought it was maybe a castle or something. And he saw this man walk onto the site with a roll of paper under his arm and he'd unroll it and all the other men would come around and smile and nod and Ray thought, well, this guy, he, he wants to know who he is, what he does. And he asked his father to go across and find out. His father came back and said, well, he's called an architect. And Ray said that he knew at that moment he, that's what he wanted to be and he determined at that time he was going to be an architect at age four and a half. <laughs> I don't know many four-year-olds who already know their life plans ahead, that far ahead. That's incredible. Yeah, I know. Oh, I was going to say the, the second part of that, if, uh, if, if I can go on with that, uh, the second uh, incident, you might say, was being interned, uh, being, has, having his father taken away, put into a camp. They didn't know where he was. They didn't even know if he was alive after uh, the Second World War and the Japanese invasion or attack at Pearl Harbor. So 20, 22,000 Canadians of Japanese descent are interned and he's, he and his mother and two younger do uh, sisters are sent to a camp. And um, he didn't know uh, where his father was. Like I say, they didn't know if he was even alive, but um, he went into this camp and he, now he's a, not of, let's see, seven, eight, nine years older, but he still has terrible scars. And uh, people in the camp would make fun of him when they saw him in the bathhouse because there was no private uh, bathhouse. And, and um, it made Ray sad. He's a sensitive boy, I guess. Uh, and he decided he would find another place to go. And he started to take a bath in the Slocan River, which was off uh, the outside of the camp. And he knew he could get in trouble if he was caught. And he didn't want to be uh, separated from his mother now. He's the man of the family. So he built a little tree house, or it started as a platform. He made it into a little tree house where he could observe, make sure nobody was coming before he jumped or went into the river and had a bath. And that was his first uh, foray into architecture. And it gave him a chance to be by himself and to realize that even though this terrible situation is going on, he's the family separated, they're literally uh, put into the wilderness. Their home has been taken. They've lost the business that his father was uh, had been working in. And he could see now that nature uh, was a much more 
uh, permanent environment that uh, in society, you know, Canada said it was going to war in defense of democracy and human rights, but here he is imprisoned and he's a Canadian. He was born in Vancouver. Do you think that injustice that, you know, he suffered, his father and his family suffered and uh, obviously the Japanese in Canada that they suffered as well. Do you think that's sort of like seen in his architecture? I, I believe it is in the sense that his work and the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center is a good example of this. It was conceived of as a way for Japanese Canadians to give back to a to a country that had denied them their own rights. But um, the building itself could bring in everybody and could give Japanese Canadians a sense that they belonged. And so the permanence of that building uh, was an important thing because people, and this was, you know, not even 20 years after the war that it was built, people had were still feeling a, a sense of, um, you know, dislodgement or um, unconnectedness to, to their country. So the building is designed to give people a chance to be connected and also to give the community a chance to show uh, the rest of the country that they want to contribute. He says architecture has to reflect democracy and social justice. I wonder what you thought of that. Well, I didn't know what he meant at first, but um, now, now I believe I do because you go into a building like the Scarborough Civic Center and um, it is supposed to represent uh, democracy at, uh, at the municipal level. It was the Back when Scarborough was a city, it was going to be the city hall, and it, they also wanted a board of education headquarters. And Ray was able to look at how he could combine the functions of both those and eliminate some duplication and come up with a building that really, from its very inception, it was designed to serve everybody who would come into it. And uh, Scarborough, like you know, many places in Canada, is a diverse community. Uh, you can't deny anybody uh, their rights to participate in the in a democracy so this building is and I believe it's really it's uh, un- underappreciated and in many ways unknown uh, gem of a building and you just walk in and right away you feel like you belong uh, I uh, I think that's a very important part of his work wasn't it kind of designed so that the secretaries would face uh, the public that's right Yes, the the people, the uh, top executives, they didn't need windows. It was the people who served the public who should have a chance to uh, communicate, so to speak, with the public by having a view into the building. And it's, uh, I'm sure it's an inspiring place to work. I enjoy that building very much. Well, the building I enjoy a lot is the Ontario Science Centre, which uh, he was commissioned to build in, I guess, that was the 60s. Yes, it was a centennial project, uh, so it may be 64, 65, it was commissioned, and then um, I'm not sure if it was open in time for 1967 centennial, it may have been the next year, but it was very much Ontario's uh, feature project for Confederation. And we mentioned, uh, you know, the connection to nature. I mean, I, I always took for granted that it was built in, you know, a, essentially a park, right? I've, I've ridden my, rode my bike through there many times and never really uh, made that connection before. But something that I wanted to ask you about is just to what extent, like, was giving uh, Moriyama this, this project a huge 
considered a huge deal at the time? Well, he was uh, relatively young at the time, uh, in his 30s. He tells us he was the first uh, person with a, what he says was a funny name uh, to be to be made to be given such a prestigious project in Ontario, and um, I, I'm not sure why they uh, selected him in the first place. I guess he was known in Toronto for um, the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center, and um, this was. Uh, well, he convinced them, I guess, that he could pull this off. I received a phone call from the Minister of Public Works. He said, Raymond, we're looking for some young architect with talent and lots of guts, and that's you. He said, it's going to be the institution of international importance. It's going to be the first hands-on interacting museum. Are you interested? I said, no, sir. It sounds like too much responsibility. He said, Ray, I think you should get your ass down here. (laughs) It's going to affect your life forever. (laughs) I said, if you put it that way, I I, I can't refuse. Well, it's a pretty, I mean, at the time, I guess, considered a controversial thing that he was proposing, right? Because it was supposed to be interactive and uh, pretty hands-on. I don't think, I don't know if many uh, other uh, buildings like that existed at the time. And I think that's that's changed since then. But was it a, was it a struggle for him to, I guess, push that vision forward? Yes, he would, uh, he describes going to conferences for uh, museum uh, per people uh, when he was planning this. And the concept was that people would participate in a hands-on way. And he was ridiculed by the people who supposedly were the experts in the field. And they told him that, you know, you're crazy. This is something for a carnival or for Disneyland. It's not for a serious museum. But he proved them wrong. And now every science museum in the world, and there's hundreds have been built since, but they all feature, I say all, they they most all feature a hands-on uh, as a way for people to learn. And Ray showed that that could be done. And there's a Confucius saying that he talks about, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. What does that mean to you or what does that mean to him? Well, when I guess it goes back to his time in uh, the internment camp and being in the treehouse. He, he was hands-on with nature at that time and he, he had no books, uh, but he wanted to... Um, you know, expand his understanding of the world. And uh, that, I guess he came across that Confucius saying later, but he realized that's what he was doing. He was being, uh, he was experiencing nature, not just hearing about it or, you know, observing it. He he got to participate in a way that um, helped him believe he was getting an education and formed the, you know, in many ways, the foundation of his career. Well, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that people might not think about the architect of a building they're visiting. As I mentioned, you know, I, I've been to the Science Center many times, Toronto Reference Library, and, you know, I never thought about the person who, who made it. Do you think architects are underrated? I think some architects, and I think Ray is underrated because um, we can see now in his buildings how he is reflecting us in a way and our values 
and giving us uh, a, a place uh, to fulfill our own potential. And um, I, I don't know enough about other architects to speak to their philosophies, but in this case, um, Ray is giving people, like I say, a chance to fulfill their own potential uh, in a space that doesn't, it's not all form and function. Like he says, architecture is not just bricks and mortar. It's, uh, it's meant to give people a chance to uh, participate and to reflect their own values. And I think his work, there are great examples of that concept. I love that. What would you say uh, his legacy is? I think his legacy is showing us that we all have a duty to one another. Um, we all ha have value. We all have uh, innate human rights. And here's an example of somebody whose rights were taken away, but instead of being bitter or uh, defeated or um, you know refusing to participate in the world, it made him more determined to make sure that all people's rights are respected and that uh, there's equality among people and that race is not something that should define you, although, I mean, it's important to appreciate in our own, all of our own heritage, and he does that. It's his Japanese heritage is, is very important to him, but it, it's not what defines him totally as a person. It's just part of what makes him such a remarkable person. And his buildings will be here for, I, I think, centuries. And he, he always finds a way to dismiss that. He says, well, you know, it'll all be gone someday. But um, <laughs> you go into the Toronto Reference Library. This is another, what I find a good example. And it's designed so that there's a break from the street. You go through a little uh, area where there's uh, reflective uh, ponds and uh, benches, and it's a break from the street. And then you come into this empty space. And it's empty because it's intended that everybody's thoughts and imagination will fill it as they participate in the, what they do in the library. And so he's, his legacy to me is he's given us these remarkable, unique spaces that challenge us to be our best selves. Uh, the War Museum is another great example. He, he says, he wants to make you think, where do you stand? It's a war museum, but it it's, doesn't glorify war by any means. It's, it challenges us to think about peace as an alternative. And I, I don't think anybody can go into that building and not be moved, especially when you hear the story of the person who designed it. This was a, a story that had to be told, and I, I'm really pleased that uh, people are going to get a chance to experience Ray and his work, because he's one of a kind. And what does Ray think of it? You know, he, he likes it, um, and this was something that, that COVID-19 uh, pandemic challenged us, because we would have already had a public screening. The idea, like he never had any editorial input and he knew he wouldn't. And he never saw any footage, although we kept him up to date kind of what we were doing, that we had actually gone and filmed a young boy to play him. Because I was sensitive to the fact that, you know, we're, we're not making stuff up, but we're certainly representing something that uh, only he experienced and not, not all of it is a good memory. So. Um, 
we, he knew kind of what we were doing, but I wanted him, and this was what we were told uh, is the best way for a subject to see a film is in a room with a lot of people. At the end of the film, people are going to leap up and applaud, and he's going to bask in the, you know, the glory of this, and um, that would be his introduction to the film. But uh, we can't have public screenings um, <laughs> when so we wanted him to have a chance to see it before it aired, and the one thing that he felt uh, was um, not accurate, and the only thing he really considered not accurate, we we show up a convertible pulling into a parking lot, and when he's describing his first interview, and he said, look, I took the bus to that interview. I don't have, I never had a convertible. <laughs> but other than that, he felt we had uh, captured him, and of course, the film is Ray talking uh, about himself. It's It's not scripted in any way. We We've just gone from the interviews and allowed him to tell his own story, and we always felt that was important. Well, now that it's airing, and you know, we should mention again that you, you started this project, I guess, you said 2005, so it's been 15 years coming, I guess. Uh, how does it feel to now have it uh, ready for people to see? Uh, it's wonderful. Um, I feel my life has been enriched in uh, ways I can hardly describe by not only by knowing Ray as a person, but uh, having such a extensive uh, now appreciation of his work, um, we can't wait for people to see it. Uh, and we're told that, uh, you know, even though, and he'll, he'll tell you, he's been saying the same thing for 45 years, but it's only recently that um, social justice or social injustice has, you know, become a real flashpoint in in the human history in ways that we didn't anticipate even, you know, a few months ago. And um, so he, his message has been constant. Now everybody else has a chance to appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today. This was great. I'm glad. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Colin. And that's the podcast. Magical Imperfection, The Life and Architecture of Raymond Moriyama debuts tonight on TVO at 9 p.m. and will be available on TVO.org, so be sure to check it out. If you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and better yet, tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs at TVO.org, or you can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew Omar, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and series producer Katie O'Connor. We'll catch you at the next screening.